According to the Joshua Project, there are 7,402 unreached people groups on the planet with a total population of 3.27 billion people. 7,402 unreached people groups with a population of 3.72 billion, with a B, people that do not know Jesus Christ, that have no access to another believer, that do not have any access to learn the gospel. They don't have a local church. There's no one in their city who knows Jesus. 3.72 billion people that, spiritually speaking, do not know neither their right hand from their left and will die and spend an eternity apart from God. Additionally, there are about 700 million people that will be undernourished for lack of food and water around the globe this year. 14 million children will suffer from severe acute malnutrition, also known in the medical field as severe wasting. There are 132 million children currently classified as orphans on this globe who need adoptive parents. Additionally, there are nearly a million unborn children who will have their lives unjustly and cruelly taken this year alone through abortion. That's just in the U.S., a million in the U.S. Globally, it's around 75 million abortions this year. Let's talk about our own city, our mission field, right? That's where we are. We're in Chicago. Our city has reported 1,892 shootings through the end of June. That's a 12% increase from last year and a 53% increase from 2019 over the same period. You only have to walk to the end of that street and then take a right to know the severity of the homeless situation in this city and what's happening right now. So grateful for Pacific Garden Mission, which has been serving for generations down the street. But the need is tremendous. Poverty, Homelessness has escalated over the last year. Dropout rates, depressions, amount of people in the prison system. What have Christians been busy with? Meanwhile, American Christians spent the exact same amount of money on Halloween costumes for their pets as they did reaching unreached people groups around the globe, according to the Joshua Project. Let me say that one again. Everything I just said. Meanwhile, American Christians spent more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than they did trying to reach unreached people groups around the globe. The vast majority of American Christians have been absolutely silent on the abortion crisis and the unjust termination of a million children's lives through abortion within our own borders every year. The vast majority of American Christians have zero concern or care about the thousands of people who were killed and imprisoned for being Christians around the globe last year. 23% of, 23 of American Christians say they never pray. An additional 21% say they pray about once a week or once a month at best. Nearly half of American Christians pray once a month or less. Meanwhile, Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? To me, it seems like something is terribly wrong, does it not? 
Today, we're going to address the plague of consumerism within the church. And I'm going to do everything I can to call you up and to call you out and to invite you into something bigger than consumeristic Christianity. I've made it my life aim to teach the Bible with clarity so that you would never walk away from this place. Anyone who ever hears the words that come from this pulpit would never be confused on the clarity of God's word. That we would base everything on God's word, not on our emotions, not on our needs on a day-to-day basis, not on the circumstances that we come across in our life on a day-to-day basis, but God's word would fuel everything about us as a people, and that it would be God's word that makes us compelling, that the spirit of God would be free to move among us. Why? Because we're bound by God's word. That's my aim. And then when I I read Jesus in Matthew 16 calling us to pick up our cross, a crucifixion device, a torture device, a death device, and follow him, and I read the statistics that most of us do not know what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ in any way, I wonder what is so terribly wrong. There's a principle that we're going to study today in Acts chapter 16 that I think is very important. I think it's got a lot of work to do in us today. I think God's going to get a hold and shake us a little bit if we're willing. The principle is this. Our king, that's Jesus, invites you to sacrifice greatly for his kingdom. Our king invites you, not just the body as a whole, but yes, the body as a whole, but you individually, to sacrifice greatly for his kingdom. Let me read the whole text, and then we're going to break it apart bit by bit and see where I get this from. We're going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Here's the key center passage, the key verse for today. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. Now, let's just start with that very last verse. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. I hope that's the desire of this church, that we would look over the city of Chicago and we would say to every biblical, preaching, faithful, healthy church, not the heretical churches of which there are many, for the heretical churches we would ask that they would have their doors shut very quickly. For the biblical, faithful churches we would ask this, verse five, that they would be strengthened in the faith and that they would increase in number daily. That is a great aim well beyond Park Community Church, that every faithful church in this city would be strengthened in their faith. Verse one provides us with some critical context to try to understand this moment, verses one to five. We're told that Paul, as a missionary, has come to the region of Galatia, to these two cities, Lystra and Derby, and as he comes there, he finds this young guy named Timothy. They haven't met yet, but he meets this young man named Timothy. At this point, Timothy's in his early 20s, more than likely. And he sees Timothy, who, and he immediately notices in Timothy a kindred spirit. And he says, this young man, this 25-year-old guy, more than likely, 23 years old, this guy I need to bring with me on the mission work I'm doing, planting churches all around the Mediterranean. 
He says, I see the spirit of God moving in his life, and I want to bring him with me, and, and we're, I'm going to take him, and he's going to travel with me all over the known world at the time and risk his life for the sake of planting churches. Now, as it turns out, this meeting of Paul and Timothy is the beginning of a very long relationship. If you were to flip forward in your Bibles, there are actually two books in the New Testament, one named 1 Timothy, one named 2 Timothy. Those were personal Uh, very emotional letters written by Paul, the missionary Paul, to Timothy, who later on would become the pastor over the churches in Ephesus. And when you read 1 and 2 Timothy, these personal letters of Paul to Timothy, what you see is this fatherly affection for Timothy. Literally, at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul is giving health advice. He's saying, look, I know you have stomach troubles. Drink a little wine from time to time to help with those stomach troubles. It's very personal in nature, this love he developed for Timothy. In fact, I'd say that it was a fatherly relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes this. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Do you hear that, that personal nature? That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. This relationship got powerful very quickly. Now, how did that happen? There's something that's kind of difficult to see in our English translations, and that's that I believe Timothy's father had passed away. When, when he's describing in... Uh, in the beginning of this passage, he talks about the mother and then the father. Uh, the mother was Jewish, the father was Greek. The, the grammar that's used to describe the father, most commentators say that that's written in such a way it's to be read as it happened in the past. This is who he was as opposed to who the mother is. I want to have two words on that. The first word is this. Timothy was raised by a single mom. And here's a young Timothy at 23, 25 years old, who when Paul, the Apostle Paul, comes into the region, he immediately says, now that's a young man I want to take with me. We got a lot of single moms in this room today and watching online in this church. And to the single moms, I want to have a brief moment. And I I want to tell you how important the work you do is and that you would look to Timothy's mom Her name was Eunice. We read about her in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt, Paul writing to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. To the single moms, please hear me very clearly. Um, Timothy is a great example of what you're aiming for. Eunice, without her husband around, raising her child in as best as she possibly could with the faith she had to raise her in a godly, this boy in a godly way. And then young Timothy grew up and Paul immediately recognized, here is a man of faith. I want to bring him in. Now, to the young single mothers in this place, we love you. You are amazing. I know you. You are doing great work and it is difficult work. I tell my wife regularly when we're at home taking care of the chores and taking care of the work and raising children, how difficult it must be on our single mothers. That is a load to carry, and you are doing an amazing job. Keep going. Cling to the Lord. Now to the rest of the church, I want you to look at Paul. What did Paul do to this young man? He took on a familial relationship with Timothy. He stepped in and he filled a gap, didn't he? 
He loved that young man. He became a father to that young man. You know why? Because young men need fathers. They need, they need a man to come around and show them the way. And to the single parents in the room, I want you to look around to this church and I want you to see the people in this room who need to lean in and care for you the way that Paul cared for Timothy, as I'm certain others in the church did. May Eunice's story be true of you, okay? Now, let me get back to the text. There's some context that's given in verse one. We're told that Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. He was a Hellenist. Now, we've seen this clash of Jews and Greeks, and it comes to play really big in this passage here, but we've seen it all through the book of Acts so far. The Jews and the Greeks did not get along, and a young boy like Timothy, they actually had terminology for children who were half Jewish, half Greek. It was not kind terminology. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be done in Jewish culture. You weren't supposed to have one parent who was a Jew, one who was a Greek. Why was this tension there? Well, it goes back generations in the past all the way especially to the Maccabean revolt that happened just before the time of Jesus where the Jews and the Greeks just began to hate each other because there were actual wars and they were killing each other. And even though the Romans had come along and they had kind of painted over this with a whole Roman culture, that initial tension between the Greeks and the Jews always remained. And so they didn't get along at all. And there was this debate that was growing, and we've seen this in the early church so far in Acts, as the gospel was going into more and more Greek territory, right? It started in Jerusalem among Jews, and then Peter started taking it out to more and more Gentile territory. People were hearing it and believing who were Greeks. The original Jewish believers were scratching their heads in awe, saying, this is amazing that the gospel would go out to Greeks. But then... Something important happened in Acts chapter 15, and that was what we studied a few weeks ago, the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15 is this pivotal turning moment, the Jerusalem Council, where this heated debate took place. Do Greeks need to be circumcised when they believe in Jesus? Now, why was that an issue? In our day and age, we don't even have any frame of reference for this. We're talking about circumcision. It's like, what does this have to do with anything? In that day and age, it was very important because every faithful Jewish boy would be circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses, okay? Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was rooted in Judaism, is now expanding into Gentile territory, and as Gentiles are believing in Jesus, the Jews are asking, wait a second, one of the main identity markers of being a follower of the God of Bible is that the men are circumcised. So don't they have to get circumcised? And this huge debate took place. And in Acts chapter 15, they had this ultimate decision that was made because they understood the gospel rightly. And the decision in Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 20, read this way. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, we don't make them get circumcised but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood. Here's a decision of Acts chapter 15. The gospel is good news because it's grace upon grace for sinners like us. There are no additional requirements put on you when you accept Jesus. It doesn't matter what tr tradition you come from. If you originally were Hindu, living in deep India before you met Jesus Christ, or you were Islamic, living in Iran before you met Jesus, or you were a secularist living in Chicago before you met Jesus, when you receive Jesus, there are no additional barriers, whether it be circumcision or any other religious rite that you have to go through to officially 
be saved by Jesus. Hallelujah. The gospel is free. It's free because all you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That was the Jerusalem council. No more circumcision is necessary. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. By grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works. If it was dependent on circumcision, it would be a result of works, but it's not. It's dependent on Jesus. So then we get to verse three of our passage today. Big decision, Jerusalem council, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. That's good news for all the Greeks out there, okay? Verse three today. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Huh? Paul literally was the main guy in the last chapter arguing against circumcision. Very next chapter, he comes in, says, all right, I got Timothy, he's not circumcised, we gotta circumcise him. Two options of interpretation at this point. Option number one is that Paul caved to pressure. He's looking around. He's seeing all the Jews. They're putting a lot of pressure on him. They're like, hey, this is that guy Paul who was just down in Jerusalem. I heard that that, uh, decision they came to at the Jerusalem council, but we don't like it, so let's put pressure on him. Paul heard the pressure. He caved. He said, fine, you win. I'm just gonna circumcise him. Now, for those of you who have read the Bible, and know a little bit about Paul, nod your head or shake your head. Do you think he caved to the pressure? (laughs) No. Paul didn't cave to the pressure. Now, just to seal that one shut, to make sure no one thinks that's the proper interpretation of this passage, later on we read in, in, I think it's in Romans, that Paul, when he came across Titus, who was also Greek, chose not to circumcise Titus. So this was not a principle issue. Paul was not caving to the pressure. Therefore, what is the motivation behind Paul circumcising Timothy? What's Paul doing? Maybe there's another principle at work here. Here it is, ready? What is not required for approval with God is often very helpful for approval with men. Write that down if you're taking notes. What is not required for approval with God is often very helpful for approval with men. Verse three gives us some clues. It says this in verse three. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Why? Because they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul wanted Timothy to be an effective missionary and he knew this. With all this tension of the Jews and the Greeks and a young man like Timothy, who there were basically curse words for young boys like this who had one father who was Jewish, one who was a Gentile, if I want him to come and be an effective missionary, whenever we go to city to city and we go to the synagogues and proclaim the gospel, we're not even gonna get to the gospel if this is an issue. We're gonna get stuck on the circumcision issue with Timothy and they might not even let us in the synagogues if we don't actually remove this as a barrier. Therefore, for the sake of not having any barriers between us and the mission God's given us, let's just get this out of the way. It's not required for approval with God, but it's certainly gonna be very helpful to get this taken care of to be effective witnesses for the gospel when we go from city to city. So he has Timothy circumcised. Principle understood? Not required for approval with God, but very helpful for approval with others. Now, 
Let's just get real for a second, okay? Paul had Timothy adult circumcised. Okay? Ugh. Okay? That's before anesthesia. Just to make this really clear, that's really painful and a terrible thing to go through. Now, we chuckle a little bit at this, but actually the principle of the entire passage is only understood if you get that. It's not just that Paul had Timothy adult circumcised. It's that Timothy, young man, 25 years old, said, I am all in for the mission of God. I'm going and I don't want anything to stand between me and being an effective witness for the gospel. Therefore, whatever it takes, I'm in. Adult circumcision, do it. I'm in. Just get that done and out of the way because I don't want any barriers between me and being an effective missionary where we have to go. Paul, I'm in with you. See, it's not just that Paul had Timothy do it, it's that Timothy said, yeah, I'll sign up for that. Let's develop this principle a little further. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. Paul, I think, summarizes the heart of this passage so well in this passage. Ready? 1 Corinthians 9. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What did you do, Paul? He says this. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he clarifies, though not myself being under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Ready? I became all things to all people that by any means I might save some. This parallel passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is profound, and we got to wait a minute here. we got to sit in this for a second. The mindset of Paul, the mindset of Timothy, was that they had so beholden Christ, he had so gotten a hold of them, that they said, whatever it takes to reach whoever I'm talking to, I will adjust anything about my life, my time, the, my, my budget, my, where I spend my time, how I relate to them. I'll learn a new language. I'll move my home. Whatever I have to do, why? To win some. Because that is what my life is consumed with. The list of examples that we could get into is endless here of how to apply this properly. And I'm gonna give us a, a longer list in just a little bit. But first, I wanna make sure that we understand the barriers that stand between us and being this kind of people. I began this message today by giving you this dichotomy between the terrible reality of the sin-filled world we live in and the consumeristic mindset of the American church. If your mission is not causing any sacrifice on your life, I don't think you understand the gospel yet. If, if your life has no actual sweat or blood or time adjustment given in your life, as a result of what you're after, I don't think you understand the gospel yet. See, the most basic premise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ gave his life, shed his blood on the cross to redeem you, save you, secure your eternity, and then sent you into the mission field to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So like what Paul said would be true, that your life might be given to save some. 
See, modern Christianity has deeply failed on this. Modern American Christianity has attempted to make Jesus and discipleship as simple and easy and cost-efficient as humanly possible. We've used marketing schemes and catchy slogans to make people believe following Jesus is as simple as buying a Big Mac. But it's not. Following Jesus costs you your life. That's Jesus' language. Pick up your cross and follow me. Timothy was willing to undergo adult circumcision for the sake of reaching his neighbors with the gospel. And many in the church today are unwilling to face the slightest bit of uncomfort or pain or sacrifice for the gospel. And I don't get it. I just don't get it. If, if we're reading the same Bible, it's very difficult to justify the modern American Christian mindset and style of living our life with no sacrifice. The Gospel Coalition had an article recently on consumerism in the American church. They write this. None of us is a conscious convert to this religion of consumerism. We're discipled into it from childhood. It offers us a story that attempts to rival the biblical story. In the consumer story, creation exists for our amusement and satisfaction. The perennial problem is not sin, but lack. We don't have enough, enough money, enough devices, enough experiences, enough entertainment. This cultural God has invited all to come and make sacrifices, promising in exchange material prosperity, comfort, and security. And this salvation story has deeply shaped business in our world today. This consumerism within the church within American Christianity is a radical redefinition of what it means to be a simple Christian. See, I, I wanna make sure you get something. What I'm trying to describe to you, the life of saying, I will do whatever it takes to reach my neighbor. I'll sacrifice greatly. Timothy went through adult circumcision. I, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll learn a language. I'll move my homes. I'll change whatever I have to about me. Why? Because my primary motivation in life is to glorify God and help people meet Jesus Christ. No matter the cost, I'm in. I'm going. I'm, I'm signing up. If that's your mindset, it's very difficult to justify the way that most of us spend our time, our money, and our re resources. We can paint Jesus up any way we like. But at the end of the day, if your Christianity is costing you nothing but a couple pennies on the side, I don't think we got the gospel yet. And look, the issue is not this. The issue is not that we just need to do more, sign up more. The issue is not that we need to give more, go on more trips. Those things come from a, a soul and a heart that is beholding Jesus Christ and truly learning to acknowledge him for true, who he truly is. If you try to get the fruit without taking care of the rot in the root, the fruit dies away over time. It's not sustainable. But if you dig into the root and if you become a, a church that says, I love Jesus, I wanna know his word, I wanna be filled with the spirit, and genuinely I'm holding my life with open hands, why? Because the king is worth it. He's worth it, he's that good, the gospel's that good, and I'm living every day underneath the reality that Jesus gave his life for me. He was crucified, not that I could just go living the same life I was, that I could have a redefined life underneath the shadow of the king. And everything about me is for him. Then what he begins to do is change the rot of consumerism to actually be what Christ designed you to be in the first place. This new life being lived for him. Go on with Acts chapter 16, verse four and five. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, and the churches were strengthened and grew in number. Timothy goes with Paul after going through this sacrifice, and the Lord opens up incredible doors for them to share the gospel. 
Let's get really practical with you, okay? I, I've, I've tried to explain a principle to you, and it's very easy when you hear a message about sacrifice more, sacrifice more, to leave with guilt. The goal is not guilt. The goal is not guilt. Hear this with clarity, the goal is not guilt. The goal is behold Jesus. I'm trying to diagnose a problem. There is a problem. And if the, the, the main thing that should stir you right now is that the problem has to do with a lack of true worship for Jesus. That's the problem, a lack of true worship. So my aim is not to load guilt that you do more. My aim is to get you to see there's a problem here. Look to Jesus who will grow you from the inside and make us the kind of church he's gonna make us, okay? How do we move from where we are to where we're going? I believe that God is placing in front of each and every one of you specific sacrifices of what it means to be a follower of Christ in your life. Every one of us has our own unique story. Every one of us has our own unique giftings, our own unique resources, our own unique sphere of influences. But here's, here's what God has done. Everything that's a part of your life has been given to you to steward, okay? To steward, whether that's your home, whether that's your family, whether that's your finances, whether that's your network, the businesses you run, the businesses you work at, your cars, your time, it's all, this is all on loan, right? If, if, if we understand it's all on loan, and we understand that we're trying to please the one whose it truly is, now that redefines us, and we begin to say, what is Christ asking us to do with this? Again, if this is not costing you anything, there's a worship issue here. Timothy was adult circumcised. That's crazy for most of our modern minds. How can we sacrifice? Let me give you some options here. I want you to think about how you spend your time. Let's think first about what it means to sacrifice our time. I'm gonna give you five practical applications because I want you to leave here thinking this is what it might look like. How do we spend our time? Today we had an announcement about our Bread of Life ministry. Incredible ministry once a month. This does not take much time, but it takes time. You have to commit a Saturday to going and serving the homeless in this city with your members in your church who are committing much more than just that one Saturday to make this ministry possible. We've got partner ministries around the city. I'm thinking of GRIP, uh, By the Hand Club, Breakthrough Urban Ministries, that are stepping into severe brokenness in the city. We studied this a few weeks ago. Why, why is the violence in the city so prevalent? Do you remember what we talked about? It's because there's a lack of the knowledge of God in the land. If you want to heal the violence in Chicago, you've got to get the knowledge of God into Chicago. When we build a city up on the word of God, the violence will go away. When you build a city up on atheism, violence is here to stay. That's how it works. So what are these partner ministries doing? They're going into the darkest, dirtiest, most dangerous parts of our city and caring for the youth and teaching the word of God. Go. Be a part of it. Jesus changed the world with 12 men. We've got at least 140 people in this room. If we're willing to sacrifice our time to serve these ministries, I think we can actually make a change. And the kingdom of God goes. It's not just about making a positive change. It's about bringing Jesus into the dark, dirty places. Most of us hear the violence, and then we have what we call castle mentality. This is what missiologists write of, people who study missions. Castle mentality is where you barricade yourself in your safe home, and you lock the gate, and then you gossip about the violence in other parts of the world. <laughs> you won't get castle mentality from this book. You won't. 
What you'll get from this book is a group of people so captured by Jesus that they want to know exactly where the most dangerous places are because that's where they're headed. Remember D.L. Moody, the great evangelist? He came to Chicago. All the pastors said, whatever you do, don't go to Little Hell. That was in the near north Cabrini Green area. Whatever you do, don't go to Little Hell. D.L. Moody looked at all the pastors and said, to Little Hell I go. And he established his ministry right where our park near north location is today. That's the Christian mindset. Number two, take an unpopular stand against abortion. You want to sacrifice? Be a voice for the most vulnerable among us and the greatest injustice on the planet taking place under our nose today. We want to talk about justice, abortion. Okay? To take that stance, to be vocal, and to say, I'm going to be a part of it, I'm not just going to be a silent head nodder in the background because my pastor says it. I'm going to step in. I'm going to change it. I'm going to be a voice and and someone who opens my home to women with unplanned pregnancies and and someone who shows up outside of clinics. Oh, you want to have a target on your head? I don't want to pay that. What if Timothy said, I don't want to pay that? I don't want to pay adult circumstances. That's too much. Number three, become an adoptive parent or a safe family. I've got two adoptive children of my own. I can tell you there is a high cost to pay. It's difficult. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Greatest joy in my life, being an adoptive dad. I can tell you the journey is hard. Woo! Many of you have been on that with me. Many of you are on that journey right now. You you want to step into brokenness? Let's let's deal with the orphan crisis in our city. Christians have always owned that corner of the market. It's only in modern day, in the last 50 years, that non-Christians are inching close to the number of adoptions that Christians do. Why is that happening? It's because consumerism has been plaguing the church. And so we don't step out and risk much. If adoption's not on your radar, perhaps consider being a safe family. It's a Christian-run Uh, foster care system that's much more short-term. You step in, and and you care for children who need home placement for two to three weeks. Many of you can do that. That's not long-term commitment. You say, oh, it's too much. Let me say it again. Timothy went through adult circumcision. I don't think you get the pain that was. But that's just basic. This This is not super Christianity. This is regular Christianity. I'm describing to you regular Christianity. This is just what Christians do. Abnormal Christianity is when Christians don't do these things. Consumerism. Number four, redo your budget, right? So you got the pie chart of your budget on your Mint account or on your Chase account, and you're looking at your budget right now, and the little sliver, if it exists, that goes to reaching unreached people groups and goes towards your church, which is funding reaching, reaching on people groups, do this with that sliver, okay? Just, just expand it from this to that. It's pretty, I, like when I read the Bible, I see God said right off the top, give 10% of a tithe to, to I, I see 10% as a baseline. Did you see that when you read your Bible? And I see Paul affirming that as a New Testament gesture. The average, I think, is 1.3%. Why? 
I'm not trying to get money here. I'm, I'm, this is a worship issue. We've, we're we're going to make this work. Jesus is building his church. I'm wondering what, what the issue is, right? Redo the budget. I can't. Well, you can. It's what you prioritize. Last one, serve faithfully at your church. I'm trying to give you practical applications here. Many of us have a consumeristic mindset when we come in here. How does this place work? Because you serve. If you're here today, you should be serving at least once a month on one of our teams. 100% of the people in this room today should be serving, greeting people, setting the table up, helping Rosie get the coffee up, singing in the band, running our children's ministry, helping with the tech team. 100% of the people in this room should be serving at least once a month. It's probably close to 30% right now. See, here's the principle and the promise. The promise is Jesus has rescued you from death eternally. He's your king and he's good. He's never gonna leave you or forsake you. You're not, you're not in better books. You're not in a better place in his books if you do these things. This doesn't get you any extra credit, right? What I'm describing today is simply just knowing our king and who he is. He loves you. You're his prized possession. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. And there's a lot of brokenness in the world, and you're here. Jesus is changing the world. His kingdom is expanding through you. Do you get how that's how it works? There's not another magical way it happens. It's the church going out, filled by the Holy Spirit. He saved you in order to send you. Will you be a part of it? Pray with me. Father, we love you. We hear these words, and God, I know that there's a, there's a weight with some of what I've shared today, God. And Lord, I pray that any sense of guilt that lays on anyone's shoulder, that you would remove it quickly. That's not my aim. Please forgive me if that's what was communicated. But God, rather than guilt, place a holy ambition in us today to sacrifice greatly for our king because he's worthy of it. Teach us what it means. May we have story after story in this place of great kingdom sacrifice that leads to great kingdom fruit. Story after story of person coming to faith in Jesus. Person after person being healed. Why? Because we step out and we risk much. Because Christ gave much for us. Lord, lead us to worship out of this today, I pray. Please lead us into worship. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name.